Welcome in, everyone, and it's time to step into the batter's box for another episode of After Hours, a minor league baseball podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Brandon Apter. If you happen to just be tuning in for the first time, make sure that you're following the podcast on Twitter at After Hours Pod. You can also find it on Facebook. Just type in After Hours, a minor league baseball podcast. You should be able to find it there. And the program is also available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Pocket Casts, along with a number of other podcast platforms. So I'm really excited for this episode's topic, as I will be joined by Minor League Baseball's Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Research, Kurt Hunziker, and he will be discussing some of the initiatives that are currently going on in Minor League Baseball, specifically the Copa de la Diversion initiative, which a lot of teams are participating in during the 2019 season, 72 teams to be exact. So he will talk about how that has grown and how they started that program, a really cool look into all of the data that they get that goes into the decisions that they make. So honestly, just a really cool, unique process to learn about, especially when it comes to a program that involves over 70 teams and that will likely be growing even more in the coming years. So without further ado, why don't we just go ahead and jump into this episode of After Hours. everyone welcome back into after hours a minor league baseball podcast right now i'm joined by kurt hunsecker the vice president of marketing and strategy and research with minor league baseball kurt thanks so much for joining me thank you for having me now uh over the first uh batch of episodes that i've had on this podcast it's been talking to teams primarily got to kick things off with ben hill then talked about uh, rebranding with a number of teams with uh you know ones that did it this year previous years and um, we also talked a little bit about the copa de la diversion which you are the guy behind that so i'm excited to talk about that with you um but uh it's always fun to learn every you know minor league baseball stories and, and you're a little different because you don't work specifically for a team you look work for minor league baseball as a whole um so dating back to to when you graduated in 99 from university of missouri uh, in journalism, you kind of worked with different companies in the early 2000s. Uh, can you talk about kind of how you developed uh, into becoming part of minor league baseball? Sure. And that's awesomely open-ended. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. When I graduated, well, I guess before I even got to college, um, I was convinced I was going to work in sports just because that's where the passion was. Uh, the passion to play and was absolutely there. The skill to play was not, uh, yeah. you know, once, I feel you on that one. Yeah. Once I went, you know, high school, I was like, okay, I'm not doing this for a living. Uh, very realistic in that regards, but it didn't take very long to kind of realize that there's a business behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was really the, the path. And, you know, I, I actually wanted to be, and this is the mid nineties. So this is Keith Olbermann, Dan Patrick sports center era. Yeah. That was, I mean, the dream scenario of dream scenarios. I remember dressing up in high school, like 
you know, dress up for your future job day and I put the ESPN logo on it. Yeah, I would blazer. I would sit in front of my TV with my N64 and more or less let the computer play games while I was videotaping myself commentating the game. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I think anybody who has had the itch for journalism and specifically broadcast or radio being play by play, that was I think that was common practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so going to University of Missouri well-renowned journalism school, you know, part of it, the, the, the path I ended up on, it was probably five minutes into my first journalism class, my sophomore year where they're like, um, if you have any creativity, um, advertising is a part of the journalism school here because advertising drives, uh, journalism, right. which seems like, you know, uh, the, the complete opposite of separation of church and state from mm-hmm commercial content and, and editorial control and whatnot, but it was an easy transition. And, and I always like to doodle and I always like to draw and I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I want to go work 10 years in the 250th TV market in the country <laughs> and, and make your way up. As great as that sounds. Exactly. Um, so, and I didn't really at that time in my life, when you, when you work for a, for a professional team and I was an intern at the university of Missouri, uh, more on their uh, fundraising arm. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thought of selling tickets just wasn't appealing to me either. Right. So the agency side of the business, where you can be creative, learn a lot of aspect, uh, learn a lot of different kinds of business, that that felt right. And so, <clears throat> you know, when I graduated, I, I started working with an agency in, in St. Louis. And my first two, my first client was Dewar Scotch. And when you're 22 years old, you know less than zero about Dewar Scott or any scotch, yeah. let alone um, a blended scotch whiskey. And yeah. so 22, it it's like, all about just the light beer really. And the, and the cans that just say beer, <laughs> uh, yep. it, it may be Jack Daniels. Yeah. But outside of that, there wasn't a whole lot of sophistication. In yeah. It's about drinking. as sophisticated as it gets. Jack Daniels. Correct. Correct. And this being University of Missouri, this is not meant as a slight to anything like Bush. Bush beer was like, that was high end for us. We loved it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you know, growing up the, on the agency side of business, you know, I really was exposed to a lot and, you know, not just brands that were outside of either my comfort zo- zone or else I wasn't the target market. I got to see things a lot differently. And Bacardi was a great client, Miller, Miller light, uh, specifically their, their racing, their NFL, their major league baseball. So that kind of opened the doors or opened my eyes to the sports marketing side of it, the sports business side, right? Uh, you know, sponsorship activation, how you, how brands take their, their sponsored events and properties and then spend against it. So I got to learn the math of the four to one return, five to one spend ratio mm-hmm. uh, versus the, the partnership fee. And that was all like great for where I ultimately wanted to be. And I did want to be at a, at a team at some point in my career. It's just kind of the, the vision I've always thought. Right. You're, everybody's working as a team, kind of like the same mentality as, as being an athlete. But now you're on the other side. Mm-hmm. But you're working with other people in the front office, uh, all across every department. And there's that one logo that you're kind of rallying around. So that was always the end all be all goal. And, I wanted to have a diverse and, and as I like to call it, eccentric um, background that, 
even in the late nineties, early two thousands, you can kind of see you need to have a, a, a well-rounded background right? just because digital and technology was coming to the forefront at that time. And, and that was really the, that was really the goal is, Hey, I can, I can learn a lot in the agency side, probably, probably be exposed to a lot more than you would if you sold tickets at a team yeah. for a few years. So that was the path I took. Um, you know, had had an itch at one point for an advanced degree and then realized that the work experience was being valued more by my superiors and brands that I worked for and client partners. And so I just kind of let go of that one pretty right. early as well. And Yeah, I think it's one of those things uh, in, in sports, in the sports industry agency, really, or team side. If you've worked with uh, teams for four or five years or three, four or five years, um, uh, one of one of the phrases that I heard from some people was experience is the education. You're absolutely correct. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, you know, there's the book, book smarts and then there's the street smarts. And, and when you're hustling, especially at age, you have to wear a lot of different hats similar to league baseball teams. There is a, a drive that anybody who works for any league baseball team and, and, and the headquarters in St. Pete, um, you never ask a question about the drive. Right. I mean, it's just, it, you, you're here, you've already displayed at some point the reason why we hired you, um, kind of. And, and that's why you see a lot of professional teams, quote unquote, you know, the major league, uh, big five, you know, starting to pick off a lot of our, our top execs and, and looking at the history of minor league baseball. I mean, one of our most well-known team execs was Tom Glick. Right. who worked for Lansing and, and Sacramento, then went to the English Premier League, and now he's the president of the Carolina Panthers of the NFL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, a lot of it is just that work ethic. You just see things. Minor league baseball executives see things a lot differently, and they can process things faster because they had to. When you're in the heat of the moment, you're wearing a, a couple of different hats. Yeah. So uh, you worked in different capacities on the agency side with a number of, of different companies till 2010. Then you were with Rawlings for, for a few years, managing the global brand marketing and media buying efforts for the company. You did a lot of cool things there, uh, including the integration of Sabermetrics into the Rawlings Gold Glove Awards selection process, expansion into the other leagues like minor league baseball, um, and, and did a lot with the uh, award system with Rawlings, can you talk about kind of the experience there? And is that where you originally got your connection to minor league baseball? No, I think the, the initial connection to minor league baseball was pretty early. Um, especially working at agencies, you, you, you had to keep track, especially if you're, you know, fairly entry level, you had to keep track of what's going on and be the, be the person and who knew the trends before the trends became trends. Yep. And so I, I was introduced to minor league baseball well in advance um, of, of working here or working even at Rawlings. You know, going back to our previous conversation, everybody who works in an agency wants to work in a brand. It's like athletes want to become rock stars and rock stars want to be athletes. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you work in an agency, you see the brand life as almost like Shangri-La. Oh, these guys have multi-million dollar budgets. We only have a sliver of that. You know, agencies, you're working the, in the office during the week, and then you're activating events on weekends or weeknights. And the brands, you know, they can kind of come and go. And, uh, they're in the luxury suites and whatnot. 
And then you realize the only way to get there is advanced degrees or you have to know somebody. Um, through my agency contacts, I was introduced to the, to the executives and my future boss at Rawlings and realized that they had the same exact mentality as I did. Right. And you know, we talk about a seamless transition. And as, a, as someone who grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, very pro baseball and, and, and hockey growing up as a kid, you either want to work for the Cardinals, the Blues, or Rawlings. Yeah. Um, so if you got one of those three, you're set for life effectively. And that was a great experience. And, and one of the things, everybody thinks of Rawlings and obviously they're so well known for, um, their baseball products. But I first got there in March of 10, 2010. I was like, ah, it's great. Iconic baseball brand. And my boss was like, yep, absolutely. Uh, you're not going to touch it for a while. <laughs> like then what am I going to do? And that was when they were relaunching their football helmet business. Right. And building the marketing plan for that, uh, building like, hey, which play, what, the endorsement strategy, you know, what players we go after, how do we, how do we engage the end user consumers? And obviously, you know, if you think of the volume of football players, youth football players, Texas comes to mind. So there was a whole lot of fun that I really actually didn't really anticipate. They talked about it during the interview process, but you know, Rawlings is the red patch. It's baseball. It's the gold glove award. Uh, and I obviously eventually got to all of that, but, you know, jumping in and, and, and taking over and starting something from scratch was uh, an awesome experience that really helped pave the way of really understanding what I do best mm-hmm. um, and what I can work on and, and what I have a whole lot of fun at. And so that was that was a ton of fun. And, and you know, that kind of helped springboard some of the things that you had mentioned uh, that we did at Rawlings, whether it was um, – with the industry and the sabermetrics coming to the forefront of incorporating that into the selection process mm-hmm. that I think really helped modernize uh, the award platform. And especially when you're in the clubhouses and, and on field before games, and we're doing photo shoots with the players, they're talking about it. Right. So I think that inclusion was more reflective of us listening to the greater baseball industry and specifically the players than, than really anything that, Hey, we just had this wild idea. It, it was right, more yeah. of, hey, we, we need to stay on top of it. This is the Rolling Glove Award. That is our trademark. Um, it's it's literally in every player's contract as a performance bonus. So it, being a part of that and helping um, modernize it, for lack of a better term, and then adding the Platinum Glove Award, which we always call the top gun, the best of the best. And then seeing those first few players win it, and then they put their platinum patch on their gloves, and they wear it on the field. Living in Tampa, Kiermaier wears it on yeah. center field for the Rays. Like, that's just, it's like, oh, yeah, we worked on that. That was <laughs> one of the ideas. And so it, it's kind of fun still seeing that. Going through the whole uh, process and then seeing it kind of on a big league player's glove. Yeah. In, in you know, five years after I left Rawlings, you know, still having that reverb and knowing that. You know, was able to do some pretty cool things there, and and really carry a lot of that innovation to to what I do today in minor league baseball. Yeah, and um, when you talk, you know, we talked a little bit about sabermetrics and how it's really come to the forefront. Analytics in general, you know, in sports is, is such a large part of the game now. Whether it be sabermetrics, advanced stats, and uh, you know that that's coming along with with a lot of the changes continuing to you know, enter the industry of baseball, whether it's 
pace of play, other things along that line. Do you think the evolution of the game uh, towards more analytic heavy stuff still bodes well for all types of fans? Because, you know, obviously you have the baseball purists that don't really want it to change, but also in minor league baseball, you have the pitch clocks and pace of play stuff that are already being instituted and will likely in a few years, you know, get there at the major league level. Well, I, I think if you look at the, just look at the world today, um, you know, Gen Z and, and even a, a significant portion of millennials, they're digital natives. So this is what they want. They want the interactivity. They want to know spin, spin rates and whatnot. And look at the players. I mean, Trevor Bowers probably was at the forefront of it, pitcher for the Indiana. Um, and now you have companies like Repsoto, who are all over every spring training, mm-hmm. or uh, yeah, spring training backfield that I saw this this spring, because players want to learn, they want to get better. And when there are tools out there that allows you to hone in on your craft, you would probably be wise to utilize and tap yeah. into those resources. Um, very much the same as what we do as marketers, and specifically on the marketing strategy and research side, we take what others would perceive as risks or, hey, well, we've never done that before. It's, it's not because the wind blows and man, we just feel like doing this. I mean, there, there, are, there is a quantifiable reason that we want to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned Copa de la Diversión. That was born out of a, uh, an assignment given to us by our president and then looking at our community of, of our fan community seeing an, a, a clear-cut absolute opportunity area and so we dove into the numbers and, and sometimes it takes a long time to to um, validate numbers and you know the resources being as they are the fact that during a baseball season minor league baseball teams are extraordinarily busy mm-hmm. so you kind of have to you can't ask for things. You can't like on a Tuesday. I can't ask for something on Thursday. Um, <laughs> yeah. We know better, but but a collaborative process and working with the teams, being like, "Hey, I have this idea. Here's my hypothesis. What do you think?" Right. And so you take the you take the the qualified responses of the teams and and quick tangent. You had mentioned that I work for minor league baseball, and I've never worked for a team. One hundred percent true. I work for one hundred and sixty teams. Right. Like we wake up every day and my team in particular is what can we do to make the 160 membership if there is there's a sliver that we can do to to make them more efficient um effective we can we can add more seats or more butts in their seats that's 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 us that's what we want to do and so in every market's wildly different at no time in the history of my five four and a half starting my fifth season at minor league baseball will i ever say i know your market better than you do um, but we can we look at the macro picture like, hey, if this, then that, what do you guys think? And, mm-hmm. and collaborating with them is really what's led to a lot of this fun um, that we've been experiencing last few years. But on the COPA side, you know, we looked at the metrics and two big, well-known, validated um, data points out in the industry, sports industry. One being ESPN Sports Bowl looks at the the self-designated fan mm-hmm. uh, every year they do a, a very extensive survey of, of sports fans across every sport you could possibly think of 
and they ask questions, and the, the easiest one is, what are you a fan of? And you just hand raise and list the ones. And according to the research, it's been pretty consistent year over year. 18.3 million Hispanics uh, in the U.S. say they are a fan of minor league baseball. And in, in an aggregate, it's 111 million right. Americans say that they're so we're like, that's an enormous market. All right, let's look at the CRM data at the team level um, in conjunction with Nielsen data that looks more at the attendee. And we realized both of them collaborated, the numbers matched. 1.7 million of our unique attendees are Hispanic. Right. So that's a significant delta, 60 million-esque um, Hispanic self-designated fans. As a marketer, the most expensive thing you spend your money on is convincing somebody you exist. Mm-hmm. So if we already know, and if you were to believe this data, and we found it to be very valid and true, 16 million Hispanics say that they like minor league baseball, but they're not coming to the ballpark. So that, that then that became, now we have our assignment. Right. Um, of, of, we want to draw more fans in our ballparks across the 160. Here's an opportunity area. Why are they not coming? And that, that really kicked off the discovery phase for what is now COPA. Yeah, and and Copa obviously for the listeners that are unsure, it, you know it's it's more or less a, a season long event uh, that gives teams the opportunity to embrace that Hispanic Latino communities within their area in which the team is. So that's really cool to kind of see how the initiative like came to be. Now, uh, in terms of the teams that participate. What's kind of the time frame for teams to decide and what kind of goes into the early stages of the process there? No, that's a great question. When we first started, the original original plan, we started researching this in 2015. Um, and this is a, a wildly new uh, project for St. Petersburg. The one that we were pretty, we felt pretty strong because in totality, we're, we're at about a 40 to 41 million attendee come through our turnstiles every year. The easy math is what does 50 million mean? Nice round number. What does 50 million attendees mean? And where we're at it and, and taking into consideration the average ticket price, the per cap, uh, per fan or per attendee. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's about $1.4 billion. There's a difference between 40, 41 million and 50 million. So there's a financial incentive to figure this out. Um, so in 2017, we kind of mapped out early in 2017 before the season started. We kind of mapped out, all right, we'll, we'll continue. We'll, we'll do a pretty comprehensive survey with of the 160 teams during the season of the, the kind of the demographic makeup of their fan base. Mm-hmm. And then in 2018, we'll do a test. In 2019, we'll expand it. In 2020, we'll expand it a little bit more. Um, very early Q1 2017, we're, we're realizing there is – an untapped potential that's just enormous. And then we all, you know, the internal team that was been working on this kind of came to the conclusion of we should probably do the test this year. And anybody who knows anything about professional sports, the exact last time you should ask your favor of the teams about starting something new is uh, in April, right when the season starts or the first <laughs> few weeks of the season. And that's exactly what we did. And we prefaced it by saying, I know the timing sounds ridiculous and it wasn't our original intention, but we think this has got, some pretty significant legs. So we contacted Las Vegas, Charlotte, King County, uh, outside Chicago, and Visalia, California. Four teams, uh, wildly different demographics, but one where I could segment the rest of the 156 teams and kind of create lookalikes. Right. Said, hey, we got this. We got this idea. 
Uh, it is opposite of what most professional sports leagues have done to date, and that is a Hispanic Heritage Night, a singular event. Yeah. Uh, or worse, lowest team name in English. And, and that was talking for a couple of years to our friends at the NBA, NFL, NHL, yeah, Major League Baseball. Because the NBA like, is, is one that does that annually now. And yet the G League team in Ontario didn't. Hmm. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was, it was a, a great fact-finding. Realize that all of us are in the same boat, that this is a, a fan base that, Outside of MLS and now the NBA is clip, you know, clipping on all cylinders. Um, you know, it, it, it just kind of seemed like it was within reach, but outreach. And why? And so when we had that significant delta and, and asked internally, you know, the, the feedback that came back was pretty universal, and that was they just didn't feel invited. And it's not for the fact that the that the, the, hundred, that the teams didn't go out, didn't try to engage this this community. It's just whatever whatever they did didn't work. Right. So. We looked at what the teams do awesomely, and that is the creativity, you know, these, these awesome promotions, these one-off type identities. We're like, you know, there's something here. I mean, obviously, there's something here. These Our teams are the most creative of all professional sports, and there are numerous executives at other leagues that tell, tell us that all the time. Like, I, what you guys can do, I wish we had the creative license like you guys do. I'm like, it's one of the perks uh, and one of the, the big draws of, of minor league baseball is the fact that we can really try anything. So and as it relates to Copa, we're just like, hey, let, let's borrow from our own playbook. Let's create identities that are culturally relevant to that specific community. So in Las Vegas, you know, through research and working with the local Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. we realized how important the uh, immigrants were to the development of the silver mining industry. So it didn't take very long for Silver Kings, or as we call it, the Reyes de Plata, mm-hmm. come to the forefront. Um, same thing in um in Visalia and Charlotte that first year. Then as we've grown from four to 33 to now 72 and what looks to be triple digits for 2020, mm-hmm. um, it, it really is just a new way. It's a new way to engage that specific fan base, but using a tried and true marketing platform that I honestly do think minor league baseball teams have perfected in recent years. And so you mentioned it's a season long yeah, we didn't want to make it a singular night in any community, but we said, hey, just do at least three and, and build it up with the end goal being that the line of what's a Copa game and just a, a, another home game gets so blurry you don't even know. And right. that's when that's when the teams will you know, truly um, reflect the holistic community. So, you know, the food that is very popular, music is very popular. Yep, we're we're playing that up for the Copa games, but we're also playing that up for regular home games. Right, and, and that's the we're already seeing that we we saw that play out during Copa's inaugural year last year. Uh, yeah, as soon as the first Copa game is this Friday, there's four teams starting this Friday. And that's I April fifth. Yeah, right. Correct. I, I think that that's you're definitely going to see that um, play out again in 2019. Yeah, and you mentioned how it went from from a small amount of teams in 2017 to then 33 in 2018, now 72 triple digits potentially in 2020. Now, when it comes to the team name specifically, is that um, more of a thing led by the minor league baseball offices? Is it a combination of both the offices and the team and kind of what process goes into the naming? 
The, well, I'll take a step back. I don't know if I actually answered your previous question. <laughs> so on the 33, we recruited, yeah, based on the success of a very small sample program, 14 games, four teams in 2017, there were 14 metrics. It goes back to everything being analytic driven um, or research based. There were, there were 14 metrics, and then it's almost like the college football playoff a ranking of one to 160 comes out. And so we literally started at the top said, Hey, based on this, we think you guys could be pretty successful if we did X, Y, and Z. And there were some teams that's, Oh yeah, cool. And other ones like, oh, I'm hosting an all-star game. Can I wait until 19? Absolutely. Right. So that was how we did in 13. Then last May, after the initial success of Copa unveiling day and, you know, flying chocolates and mariachis, getting a ton of the buzz and, um, you know, uh, Inland Empire drawing almost 8,000 on a Thursday when they typically average 1,800 for Kukui's first game. It's like, oof, yeah, we're on to something. Um, the recruitment ended at that point. The 33 teams and, the, and their work and the successes they were having on the field really became the recruitment tool. So what we did in, in May of last year, we, we sent an RFP to the teams not in it already. Said, if you want to be in it, let us know what you would do with this. Um and we had more than 50 uh, apply and we took everybody just because yes, that's what, exactly what we want. We want to find the hand raisers. Some decided throughout the discovery phase, like, Hey, you know what? There's a lot that we need to learn that we're, we're, we're realizing we'll be ready for uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's how we got to the 39 new teams for 2000. All 33 came back, 39 new teams for 2019. And some of those that really wanted to be part of it, that did their due diligence, that they will start in 2020. Then more teams um, and some of the teams that are brand new, like Amarillo for yeah. 2020. Brand new team. You didn't really want to yeah. confuse. Um, <laughs> Got to get the area used to the, exactly new, right. to the general sense of having a new team with a new name yep. there. Yep, exactly right. So, you know, that's really um, how the how the, the aggregation of team process went. As far as names, that is universally up to the teams. And right. the one thing that we did highlight was is what we learned in the the test in um, 2017. That is, your best friends are your local Hispanic chambers of commerce or similar type civic organization for a lot of different reasons. One, um, they will help you avoid the trap doors that if you did this in a vacuum, you would fall into. Uh, B, they have access to the community. So grassroots, uh, and specifically specifically the Hispanic community, grassroots mm-hmm. opportunities were abundant. Oklahoma City did a great job of that and, and when they created Celio Azul for their Copa name. And there's countless other examples. And and that's really, you know, they can pick whatever desire they want. Um everything was states rights as, as our president. Likes and when it comes, when it comes to like having 72 teams, these are logos and stuff that, that more or less get, starts getting created in 2018. So it's not just like a few month process. It's oh, like a, sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and with production timelines being as they are for, for some of our licensees, you have to get out earlier. I mean, in this year, I mentioned we did the RFP for 2019 in May of 18. We did the RFP for 2020 in January. Right. So, I mean, we're getting smarter. We're we're adding necessary time for legal clearances, and this isn't just a, and, and this is run by our licensing department just as much as um, if a team decides to rebrand officially, quote unquote. 
So we're, we're following the same processes. We're, we're not kind of recreating the wheel. So the timelines are, are approximately the same. Um, even though this is a tech, technically a specialty night, just because of the cultural relevancy, we mm-hmm. want to make sure that there is enough t- development time and brainstorming time for the teams with their, their local partners, right? whether it's an Hispanic Chamber of Commerce or, or somebody else. Yeah, and earlier you talked about how uh, you know professional sports, whether it be Major League Baseball, the NBA, kind of adopting some of these things uh, with regard to Hispanic Latino communities, the Los Heat, you know, the Miami Heat. Um, so we we start kind of seeing more things rolling over into professional sports, not only like with the uniforms and 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 team names but but the promotions as well you know you go to a major league baseball game today and you see a lot of you know shades of minor league baseball promotions but with this copa initiative that you guys uh, started in minor league baseball are there any kind of barriers uh, keeping major league baseball from potentially you know adopting more creative logos and doing something like copa no and i think I mean, we already saw one um, in professional sports, and obviously, there are there are various rules as far as what can be unif- on uniforms and whatnot. And I, I think the 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 five major league properties uh, across the various sports are a little bit stricter as what they can do. Where minor league baseball, it's not as restrictive. You know, I, I have new best friends at the American Hockey League, mm-hmm. specifically the San Antonio Rampage. You know, they saw firsthand in their marketing of San Antonio missions turning into the Flying Chunkless Day, San Antonio, and what that did and just buzz mm-hmm. that translated into ticket sales and, and obviously merchandise. And so this year they adopted for every Friday night or the last Friday uh, of each month during the season, the Chimuelos, which is toothless effectively toothless men um and they're like we got a heads up like hey we saw what you did we're we're gonna borrow your idea i'm like right absolutely i mean we're again we're all in this together i don't i think it's the benefit of the sport i mean anytime you can find something that's growth that that can that can create growth and a better connection with your fan base um i there should be no restrictions now I can't speak for any of the other leagues uh, for all the obvious reasons, but you know, I've had the AHL, I've had the G league, um, some team guys like, Hey, we're thinking about doing this too. How'd you guys do this? And it was not like, I'm not, while not turning over the playbook, yeah. I'm basically saying, yeah, this is what we did. And we've been very open and honest about that. Yeah. Don't, the only deterrent of that is, is some of the good names, especially as these teams preparing for 2020, a lot of the good names are kind of gone. Yeah. Now. Um, <clears throat> which is, you know, the early bird gets the worm. Um, but no, I, I think it, it, it'll be, it's fun to see where we're starting to go with this. Now I talked about the, the blurring of, you know, the Copa designated games, whether it's three or, or five or, or 10 plus me are the average, I think for 2019 is five and a half per team. Last year was an even five. So there's more teams and, and, it really depends on the market. You can take a home stand, you can do uh, one per month, you can do every Thursday. Right. You guys, everybody knows their market better than I do, so there is no restrictions. Just please do at least three. Um, but I, I think there is 
for us nationally and we're working with the teams is it's what's next um everyone's like hey what's the next copa i'm like no it's the current copa it's just yeah. what's next within copa and that's going deeper so going into the community so it's not just ballpark you're going into communities you are truly developing the next generation fan by by uh truly developing the next generation participant so getting and it's not just Hispanic boys and girls playing baseball and softball with the entire community. But now you have these cool new identities that are icebreakers for lack for the I mean, yeah. lowest common denominator. We can go out in communities. And, and we saw it last year in Inland Empire. We saw it already in Albuquerque of, of local teams adopting the, the Copa identity because they just, yep, this is our community. Even though I'm not Hispanic, Mariachi speaks to me because I'm from, I live in New Mexico or I'm from right. Albuquerque that's next is going deep and that's when this thing goes from um just within the ballpark to being more of the long-term player that it always intended to be and an authentic engagement tool you know you need to have a a uh, a big splash in the beginning but it's it's a long-term ripple effect and we're we're the fun part is is before year two even begins you're already starting to see it right and it's interesting to hear, obviously, getting out into the communities and and really drawing from the culture of the Hispanic and Latino communities. It, it, you see it in rebrands just in general, how teams like these names that come out, uh, whether it be the, the Yard Goats or, or the Sod Poodles or the Rubber Ducks, any of those, it, it, it's ones that tie more into the community. And I think that's really important. Um, when people see these names, it, it's it's trying to create more of a feeling for fans like, hey, I'm a part of something. Well, and you're absolutely correct. I think that was, goes back to what I said before about we borrowed a page from our own book. So whether it's the Yard Ghost, there was an el- a community element in that name. So we just went a, a, a layer more, and it was a Hispanic community. So whether it's the Reyes de Plata in Las Vegas or, and there are gazillions of examples that are stuck in my head right now. Some for the 2020 teams, I can't say. Even a name that's not in Spanish, Lowriders. You know, that was born in the Central Valley in, in California. As soon as Fresno unveiled that identity, everybody's like, of course. But it was so specific. Like, you could have had Lowriders in Omaha, but it wouldn't have felt right. It makes a whole lot of sense in, in, in Fresno. Um, much in the same way that that's another great example. Um, so many, oh, Zolos and Gwinnett, right? You know, they just, they just rebranded stripers not too long ago. Um, but they wanted something that really connected in Gwinnett County is the the largest, has the largest Hispanic community in the Atlanta metro region. And it's predominantly Mexican. And so Zolos is the uh, official, like it's a Mexican hairless dog. It's an official animal in Mexico. And so it, it, you're, you're celebrating one specific community, but it can be adopted by Puerto Ricans or Dominicans or what have you. And so I think that's, we we borrowed our own playbook because this is an authentic community connection. It's just in some cases, a different way of saying it. Trenton is the Trueno, it's thunder, um, but it's the Spanish version of it. And then, you know, we, we wanted to explore the, the trends and the colors, um, that are really more of is if you look at them, it's it's like youth oriented. Yeah, uh, I always said, and and youth today in the U.S. is multicultural by definition. So I said, hey, if you if you need a color palette to think of, go to the mall, go to the finish line, 
go to any kind of shoe store and just squint and look at the colors and that's your color palette. And if you look at the hat wall graphic that we shot on, on Copa Unveiling Day, it looks a lot different than the normal wall. There's a lot of neons, a lot of bright colors, a lot of fun. And that's really the why it's called the Fun Cup, Copa de la Diversión. You know, that's everything about the minor league baseball game experience, ballpark experience is rooted in fun. It doesn't matter what language you say. It doesn't matter who you're with. Um, it translates everywhere. We just had to invite them in. Yeah, and Copa is is our formal invitation to to test drive the ballpark, come enjoy the experience. We we think you're going to like the food, we think you like the music. Um, our players are great storytellers. Our Latino players are great storytellers. There's just so much that is such a perfect alignment and connection that we just had to do it. And, yeah. and Copa became a spark. And then the best part is how much the clubs have just absolutely owned this and run with it. Yeah. And you mentioned before when you were talking about Rawlings, you know, you see uh, ball players kind of wearing the patch on their gloves. Um, so it must be neat to kind of know that there are people in major cities that wear hats of minor league teams in the middle of nowhere in towns that they've never heard of. Right. No question. It doesn't matter if it's Copa or not. I mean, you look at the, and this is where the, I get the designers and the teams their absolute do um embrace the non-conventional aspect of our identities um you can have fun with it and, and a lot of these are long-standing i mean someone was a good friend of mine who i would class who i would classify the same way you did earlier of a, a bit of a purist um they're just like oh these two word names yeah you've lost control i'm like I believe the Toledo Mudheads have been around for a while. Yeah. Yep. And, and it's just, and that's as about as classic a sports name, regardless of, uh, of, of level. That's who we are. That's our personality. We're fun. Coming, coming to our ballparks is a memorable experience. You may not have any idea who won the game and that's okay. Yeah. Just as long as you had a good time and want to come back again. And that's really what we're trying to do in any kind of marketing um, platform that, that we create or, or collaborate with the teams on and Copa being no different. Yeah, and I think it's so huge because obviously major uh, minor league baseball is one of those atmospheres where it's not about necessarily the on-field product. It's about the stuff that goes on really off the field and the entertainment and the atmosphere for families and, and for fans that don't even necessarily love sports or baseball. There's an environment for everybody and, and every sort of demographic, especially with this uh, COPA initiative. Uh, when, when it comes to like going into more of the design aspect, you, you mentioned it's kind of on the teams for that. But you know, if you're if you're into sports, you're you're on Twitter, you're on social media. There there are fans of sports on social media that are aspiring designers that create you know logos and uniforms for their favorite teams. Um, I'm not sure if you ever you guys ever get any of those submissions, but do you have any sort of advice to the designers that are kind of looking to get in front of the right people for this kind of stuff? Well, the first, and I would even think. I would even believe that a lot of the professional designers that work with not just our teams, but really anybody is, um, you have the skill, but you don't have all the answers. Uh, so taking the direction and listening, that's always key. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think as it relates to our teams, um, I know Brandios kind of has like a monopoly for the most part, but <laughs> they have a, they have quite a few, um, studio Simon has quite a few still, but, I mean, there are, there are a handful of players and, and 
what they've done is they've any of them, all of them go out to they're integrated within our community. So it's not like they're just an outside consultant. I mean, they think about the minor league baseball business. They think about putting, adding more fans and seats and smart design helps do that. It helps tell the story. And at the end of the day, we're great storytellers um, throughout minor league baseball. So um, if, you, if you're an aspiring designer, yeah, yeah, obviously you have to have skill. Uh, I would not submit anything that was created in like Microsoft paint. Uh, but I, I think the way that our teams go about it, you, know, you need to have um, the ability from a, from a brand identity standpoint, I think everybody kind of defaults to the hat and cap, but think about animations, think about how it re, re, you know, viewed and, and consumed on digital media. Yeah. And I think, I think the designers that you had mentioned, um, Brandio, Studio Simon, a handful of others do a very, very good job of thinking about all the different ways that these brands are consumed. Yeah, and you have to be able to them. tell a story, you know, behind yep. every brand, there has to be a story. And I know with all of the rebrands that we've seen over the last five, you know, five, seven, eight years, uh, there's always a reveal with a video to kind of to kind of present all of that stuff. And it's so important to make that early connection with the community, with the new logo and you know, be well, able to have a story that people can get behind. Well, and and going back to there's no sense in recreating the wheel if you don't have to. That scenario you just highlighted, like the, the big reveal, big press conference, making the community involved in the development of it. And then the unveiling. It's one. Do- it's what's done regularly for things. And and that's we literally copy paste. And that's what we did for Copa Unveiling. Day. Yeah. Um, and holding press shoot- conferences doesn't necessarily cost any money either no and and the earned media like we just did a report in a preliminary uh earned media on um social and um broadcasts and it's north of 600 million impressions wow um and it's because i mean this year is a little bit different last year we kind of sprung cope on everybody this year we gave already months notice uh unveiling days on march 18th Mm -hmm. and the teams last year we had was it five press conferences this year? We had 45. Um, so, I mean, it's we are great promoters. <clears throat> uh, minor league baseball teams are great promoters, and it goes into every facet of it. So, the the, the time, the commitment, creating the stories and the identities, and the how to unveil it, and how then you continually uh, continuously evolve it in the community, and, and that's that's the fun, and that's what is probably the best part. And going back to a long way around the pond working with the 160 is the best part about this job yeah you know every every community every team is a lot different every gm or owner is wildly different um but at the end of the day everybody's running the same boat you yeah. want to ha- you want you want to provide such a memorable experience where you can get away from it all it's i mean it's a, you know as cliche and corny as it has sounds minor league baseball is the memory making business it is it is i mean and we just finished a massive brand introspective uh and i heard that 160 different times and so it's like okay our our the fact that we're fun based and that we're so creative creates these memorable experiences yeah that that's who we are that's that's our you know five second elevator pitch yeah my last my my last question for you before i let you go um with regard to other initiatives obviously you mentioned copa is the initiative you just got to find ways to build on that but are there any other initiatives kind of brewing in minor league baseball or ones that are currently ongoing that you guys are excited to kind of see how they work out in the 2019 season well it's funny copa is one third of the first initiative 
So going back to the quest of 50 million fans, you know, we put a, we put a, a flag in the ground in 2026, like, okay, what is 50 million fans? 2026. So when we, when we created this 10 year marketing plan that we called, it's fun to be a fan, which was not a new term in minor league baseball, but absolutely the most perfect slogan you possibly think of. Um, and luckily for us already trademarked. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, um, you know, what are, what are the, and I hate this term, but it's, the fastest to put it is what's the low hanging fruit. Like where are the opportunity areas? And the first was multicultural. And within that was Hispanic, um, our pride initiative, which will expand significantly this year. And then uh, obviously African-American. So that's, those are all those, those two other components are in process. Uh, Pride gets their, gets a big jump this year and the African-American initiative takes off in 2020. The other two segments are, are in progress already. And that's a very dedicated youth focus. And we've a new partnership with baseball youth magazine. You know, they've got a, they've got their pulse on, on the youth player, whether it's travel ball or entry level. And, and that's a very important segment for anybody in baseball, just because that is the future paying consumer coming right. to our ballparks. And the third being military. Because find me a sports property that if you take a map of all military installations in the country, <clears throat> Department of Defense, what have you, uh, and overlay a map of your 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 ballparks, it's an almost ideal match, a 160 for 160 match. So there's right. a lot that we can do in engaging our, our military fans. You already see, yeah, there there's so, uh, so many routes set down with that, too. Um, yeah. with the you know, military recognitions and, and obviously, uh, you know, a few years ago, I think it was more than a few years ago, four or five years ago, uh, a lot of teams started doing the uh, military card sets. Yes. And, and if you look at the communities that are at like epicenters, and I, I can top of my head, I think of Norfolk, Omaha, Corpus Christi, um, and now Fayetteville in North Carolina by Fort Bragg. <clears throat> Like those are your, and they've been doing this for a very long time. So it's not like we're coming in with a big, bright new idea. It's, it's, Hey, how did you guys do this, this, and this? You mind if I broadcast this to the rest of the teams? No, go ahead. Like yeah. that stuff in the collaboration is really where, where, where it works. And, and again, it's, it's a choose your own adventure. Some teams can do you know, one, two, and three. Others might do one, four, and eight. It, it's really what works best in their market. But those are the other big fan development initiatives and, I'm very, very optimistic on the 50 million um, by 2026. Yeah, uh, unless Mother Nature continues to play her evil games on us. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you, you know, it's always going to happen. At least in the uh, in the Florida State League, the other the other mm-hmm. teams, you know, it's just hit or miss. But correct. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on to to chat again. Uh, we're looking forward to the. Uh, you know, the growth of Copa over the years, you know, triple digits in 2020 potentially, and obviously the 72 teams that are doing it now. I mean, the logos are just really a lot of fun to learn about, you know, what the, why the teams chose it specifically. So if you're listening and want to check out some of these logos, you can visit milb.com backslash fans backslash Copa. And it gives more information about the whole initiative, and you can check out all of the teams, maybe even one in your area that you haven't gotten to check out, and now you can. So, Kurt, I appreciate you uh, coming on to chat, and hopefully I'll be able to catch up with you at some point later to talk about some other initiatives minor league baseball has in the works.
Awesome. And thanks again for having me.